Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, convict us, comfort us, uplift us, draw us ever closer to Christ Jesus. We pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit this morning, softening our hearts unto you. Amen. So there was a story quite a few years ago in the Los Angeles Times. The headlines read this, Couple meet, forgive slayer of daughter. So Diane Bristol, the daughter of Mrs. and Mrs. Bristol from Dearborn, Michigan, uh, she was 20 years old, their daughter, and she was in the San Diego area uh, selling products door to door. She was kidnapped, raped, and then strangled by a man named Michael Keyes. The judge who convicted Keyes to life in prison called him cunning, calculating, and callous, the most vicious killer I have encountered in my career. The article goes on, Mrs. Bristol said that when she and her husband received the devastating news that our daughter had been raped and brutally murdered, it was like a knife into the depths of our souls. We had the normal reaction of grief and anguish. Yet, the Bristols drove 2,000 miles to see this man of whom they ultimately said, we love this special person from the bottom of our heart. The article goes on, the Bristols said God led them on a mission of forgiveness, which prompted their friends and loved ones to shake their heads because they couldn't understand. Mrs. Bristol said, we harbor no hatred and no revenge. She told this to 60 prisoners at the chapel in the prison. She said, we know God can make something good out of this pain. Keyes, who was first admitted, who first admitted to the Bristols that he didn't quite understand their act, told fellow convicts that people like the Bristols gave meaning to the word forgiveness. Then choked by emotions and tears, Keyes turned to the Bristols and said, God bless you folks, and threw his arms around both of them. What would make us happiest, Mrs. Mrs. Bristol said, is when he accepts Christ Jesus. This is a depth of forgiveness that the world does not know and barely recognizes. You see, to forgive completely, not just in part, but give for completely, is the lifeblood of Christianity. Look to other religions, other worldviews, and you might find strands of forgiveness, but you will never find forgiveness at the core with the same force and meaning as you will find in Christianity. See, forgiveness comes from the very nature of God. Because he is merciful, he forgives. He has paid the cost for sin, and he has paid the cost for the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, who shed his blood for our sin. So when I say that Forgiveness is the lifeblood of Christianity. It truly has meaning and impact. So this week, we're continuing our series 
on forgiveness. And this one is forgiving others from the heart. If you want, there are sermon notes for you, and they are also online. We're going to learn from the Gospel of Matthew what it means to forgive others. And we're first going to learn about our reluctance to forgive, because most of us are pretty reluctant when it comes to forgiving. So, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So the context here is that Jesus has been teaching about forgiving the brothers of their sins. And so Peter comes up to him and he says, how often should I forgive? I mean, how much do I really have to forgive? And then he says seven times. Now you have to know that seven times is a perfect number. And most rabbis were teaching during this time that you should forgive three times. So I don't know if Peter was, you know, just asking an honest question or if he was trying to show off a little bit. Should I forgive seven times, Jesus? You know, as, as if that's so much better when, than what the rabbi says. And you got to love Peter for that, right? He's at least trying, but he completely misses the point of what Jesus is talking about in forgiving others. So, by Peter even coming up and saying what he says, he actually shows us our heart a little bit. The human heart is reluctant to forgive completely. The human heart really is reluctant to forgive completely. Oh, you know, we will forgive a certain person so much under certain circumstances, but will only go so far, right? But Jesus says, Peter, you didn't get it. So he says to him, I tell you, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, there are some translations, by the way, that say it's uh, 70 times seven. Okay, so there's a really good cartoon. I actually messaged the uh, cartoonist this week, so I have permission to show it. I love this cartoon. I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And Peter's great. Not only do I have to forgive my brother, but now I have to do math. But in this case, whether it's 77 times or 490 times, it's not about the number itself. Jesus is taking a perfect number and making it a much greater number. He says, our Father forgives completely, so you should forgive completely. To forgive completely. I mean, how do you do that, right? I mean, the human heart, I, I don't know about you, but I am reluctant in forgiving completely. On my own, I hold back. And thus we are going to see that forgiving completely is a divine aspect. It comes from Christ Jesus himself. So 
Jesus is going to tell a parable to Peter and the disciples about how merciful God is because God's mercy forgives completely. God's mercy forgives completely. So he tells this parable. So I'm going to start with verse 23 through 27. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and pay until payment could be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So the parable is pretty straightforward. The master, the king of heaven, this is God the father, and he's going to settle his account with his servants. Now, I don't think this is the final account. I don't think this is about ultimate salvation. I don't think that's the emphasis of the story here. The emphasis of the story really is on the debt owed to the king and the king's mercy or the master's mercy. That's the emphasis. So let's talk about the debt owed to the king. It says the servant owed him 10,000 talents. So what does that really mean, a talent? Well, figures are going to vary a little bit. But a day, a day laborer could earn one denarius a day. And a talent is about 6,000, at least 6,000 denarii. So if you do the math, it would take about 16 years of work to get one talent. So if you start to do the math here, though, it's 10,000 talents. So if I've done the math correctly, I think that's 160,000 years. Some people will also say, well, it's worth 20, so 20 years, so it could be 200,000 years. Do you, do you get that? Now, when you go in for a mortgage, you normally get, well, you know, a, a, a 15, a 30-year mortgage. Could you imagine saying, yes, I'd like a 160,000-year mortgage? I mean, I actually did the math. That's over 5,300 generations. It's an astronomical figure, one that if you went in for a mortgage and asked that, they would just laugh you right out or actually ask the police to come and take you because you were off your rocker. But Jesus makes this point that the debt is so great that it can never be paid back. The magnitude of our debt to God is so great that there's no way we could ever pay it back. Never. Nothing. So the servant comes face to face with the magnitude of the debt that he owes. And he doesn't want to go to be sold to, into slavery, into to prison, in essence, until he can pay it off, nor his wife or his children. And so he comes face to face with the king and does the only thing that we could ever do with the king, which is to plead for mercy. And he falls at his feet and he pleads for mercy. 
He says, I will pay everything back. Now, could he pay back 10,000 talents? And the answer is no. So it's obviously a lie, even if it's a well-intentioned thought. There's no way he could pay back. But what does the king do? The king says, I will absorb all of your debt. I will cover all of the cost because of compassion, because of mercy. He will be merciful to that servant. The king, God himself, covers the debt owes and pays the price himself. Just as Jesus Christ covered the debt of sin and paid the full price. Do you remember last week we talked about the mercy seat and how it was the blood on the mercy seat that covered the sins? Jesus said, I will cover all the sins with my blood. I will pay that debt in full. And even on the cross, even for those who spat on him and mocked him, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even on the cross, he had compassion, and he showed mercy. This is the extent of the mercy that God the Father has for you in Christ Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, who has done you such a great wrong? Who has sinned against you so greatly that you think you could never have compassion upon them? That you think you could never, ever have mercy upon them? Who in your life are you willing to not forgive? You see, there are people who do things in our life, you would say, I could never forgive them. The example that I gave of the Bristols, forgiving the person who murdered their daughter, they forgave him. I want to give you another example. There's a fellow, Ernest Gordon. He wrote a book called Through the Valley of the Kwai, and the subtitle is From Death Camp Despair to Spiritual Triumph. So Ernest Gordon was an Allied prisoner in World War II. And you might know the movie Through the, uh, the Bridge Over the River Kwai. You've probably heard of that one. You might have seen it. That's actually a fictional account written by somebody else about a railroad bridge in the Valley of the Kwai. Ernest Gordon wrote the true account. He was there. He was captured and worked on the infamous railway of death. They had to build a railroad in Thailand through the Valley of the Kwai. More than 80,000 Allied prisoners of war died during the building of this railroad. That is approximately 393 lives for every mile of track, or one grave for approximately every 13 feet of track that was laid. The conditions that they were in were horrific. The Japanese were beyond brutal. They were evil, totally morally depraved. 
And yet in the midst of hell there, Ernest Gordon became a Christian. In fact, most of the camp became Christians. And the light of Christ Jesus was shining in that darkness. Now, at the end of the book, near the end of the war, where the Japanese were losing badly, he, uh, they were at a railway, railway station, and he writes, We found ourselves on the same track with several carloads of Japanese wounded. They were on their own and without medical care. No longer fit for action, they had been packed into railway trucks which were being returned to Bangkok. They were in a shocking state. I have never seen men filthier. Their uniforms were encrusted with blood, mud, and excrement. Their wounds, sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. We can understand now why the Japanese were so cruel to their prisoners. If they didn't care for their own, why should they care for us? The wounded men looked at us forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages, waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse of war. There was nowhere to go and no one to care for them. These were the enemy, but more cowed and defeated than we had ever been. Without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration, ration and a rag or two, and with water canteens in their hands went over to the Japanese train to help them. Our guard tried to prevent us and yelled at us, but we ignored the guards and knelt by the side of the enemy to give them water and food, to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word. Grateful cries of thank you followed us when we left. An allied officer from another section of the train had been taking it all in. What bloody fools you all are, he said to me. Don't you realize that those are the enemy? I asked him, have you never heard of the story of the man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho? He gave me a blank look, so I continued. He was attacked by thugs, stripped of everything, and left to die. Along came a priest and passed him by. Then came a lawyer, a man of high principles. He passed him by as well. Next came a Samaritan, a half-caste, a heretic, an enemy. But he didn't pass by. He stopped. His heart was filled with compassion. Kneeling down, he poured some wine through the unconscious lips, cleansed and dressed the helpless man's wound, then took him into an inn where he had cared for him at his own expense. But that's different, the officer protested angrily. That's in the Bible. These are the swine who've starved us and beaten us. They murdered our comrades. These are our enemies. What a telling statement the officer gave. But that's different. That's in the Bible. This is real life. That's, that's just a story, but now we've got the enemy, the hated person, right in front of us. Look, you can go to work, you can go to church week after week, year after year. You can let God's word go in one ear and out the other, but still not apply the word. To still not have a living faith. To have a living faith is not just to know the Bible, but to apply his word to live out his word. 
to have a, her, a heart, not just of church, which is the form that we have, not just the form, but the substance, which is to have a heart of Christ Jesus. See, these prisoners, even at the end, when the Allies had won and they were having the Allied uh, troops come to the camps and get the prisoners who were freed by that time, the prisoners said, don't shoot our captors. They said this. He said, the, uh, he said, the captors were spared by their captives. Let mercy take the place of bloodshed, said these exhausted but forgiving men, not an eye for an eye, a limb for a limb. Why could they say that? Why could anybody forgive such atrocities that were done to you, to your friends, to see people who were beheaded right before you? How could you ever forgive them because they had the heart of Christ. Because they knew that the, the debt they owed to God was great. And in God's eyes, they were no better than the Japanese soldiers. They now had a heart for Christ Jesus. And we all need to have that heart because on our own, we don't want to repent. We don't want the heart of Christ the parable continues on this way, 28 through 30. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt you know, growing up, my, uh, we grew up Roman Catholics, and we were good Roman Catholics. We went to church every Sunday, rain, shine, didn't matter. We were out to church. And it wasn't a big church necessarily, but it was full, and it had two services. But it had a fairly small parking lot with basically one entrance in and out. And so near the end, there would be a traffic jam, right? After church, there's always a traffic jam in the parking lot. And so what you would find is that some people would leave church just a little bit early to get out of the parking lot. Some people wouldn't leave early, but then they would rush to their cars. And so when we were, when we were in the car, my father had the mindset that we should all take turns, right? We should all help each other out. But there were some people who didn't want to, and they'd cut in front, and they'd inch forward. You know how people inch forward a little bit. And his comment was like, how can they go to church and then act just like that? And that's what happens. A lot of people go to church and then they act just like the rest of the world. Again, that's a reflection of our heart. We often hear the grace and mercy of God, but it goes in one ear, not the other. It doesn't touch the heart. There's no repentance, and thus it makes mercy and forgiveness cheap. You see, Jesus tells the story that the servant who owed 10,000 talents, an astronomical number, he goes and he goes to one servant who owes him just 100 denarii, which would be like a penny compared to the debt that he owed, actually less than a penny. And what does he do? He acts like a, a mafia strong arm and he starts to choke the guy. 
And the fellow, just like the servant before the king, he gets down on his knees and he pleads for mercy. But the servant had a hard heart and he had no compassion. He had no mercy for that man. Rather, there was a, probably a bitterness, a vindictiveness. He had just been before the king, the master. He'd been received mercy, but it went in one ear out the other. It didn't touch his heart as all, at all. And so, thus, he had nothing but vindictiveness. You see, Ernest Gordon, it's really interesting. And by the way, the book is out of print, but it, uh, it has been reprinted with a new title. It's called To End All Wars. I have one copy here. It's a, just got it. It's a little beat up, but if anybody would like to read it, feel free. It is a wonderful testimony. Ernest Gordon was not a Christian before he uh, went to that camp, but what he saw in that camp was amazing, that the prisoners who had nothing, I mean, they had nothing, started to steal from each other, started to fight, started to bicker with each other. In the midst of hell, they were even creating a greater hell. But then the light of Christ shone on people. And one by one, they were born again to a new life. And a new life, they came together, helping each other out. In the midst of hell, in circumstances where you would think there would only be bitterness and vindictiveness and anger, there was forgiveness, there was grace, there was mercy. They knew how to forgive. So let's continue on with our parable here. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they went and reported to their master all that had taken place, then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should not have you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. This parable is not a sugar-coated parable. It is not a feel-good parable. Jesus really is bringing home the point of having a change of heart, which only comes through repentance. You see, like the prodigal son who left everything, the riches that the father had, went and squandered everything, he had a change of heart, a change of mind, and he came back, and he was welcomed fully. But the servant who went and choked another had no such change of heart. And so what did the king do? Put him in jail. And I think this is a pretty good and apt lesson that we can draw from this. Unforgiveness keeps you in prison. An unforgiving heart puts you in prison. An unrepentant heart that has no forgiveness feeds bitterness and resentment. And ultimately, there's fire, there's hatred, there's revenge, there's plotting. But more than anything, it hardens your heart, and you have no love or joy of the Lord left. So the king says, I gave you a great gift. You've rejected it. 
You've squandered it. So you will have what you desire. No forgiveness. You will be in that jail. This is a hard lesson for us, isn't it? You see, to not forgive is to deny the very nature of God. To not forgive, to not have mercy, to not have compassion, is to deny the very nature of God. To not forgive is to have forgotten Christ. You know, we've been doing this series on forgiveness. You get like a half hour, I get about 15 hours a week on this one. And it starts to bother you after a while, you know? And I, I really understood this week the connection between mercy and forgiveness because sometimes I don't want to forgive and I try to work up a feeling of forgiveness and, and I can't quite get there. But I know when I saw it was mercy and compassion. Yeah, I could be merciful and compassion, compassionate and out of his mercy, forgive. And it takes you out of prison and it does restore joy and it restores love. See, you and I are to love from the heart. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. If we are to be the king's children, if we are indeed children of our heavenly father, then we are to live as his children and not children of the world, right? Colossians chapter 3 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That's merciful, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, and meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. See, ultimately, Jesus is getting to a, a gospel message here. The gospel is the good news of forgiveness. That you are born again with a new heart, not a heart of stone, heart of flesh, a heart of Christ Jesus, one filled by his mercy, by his grace, by his love. That's the heart you're supposed to have. And by the way, in the early 2000s, Ernest Gordon met with one of the Japanese soldiers there on the banks of the River Kwai. And there was a meeting of peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. So this morning for you, it is but one question and one question alone. With whom do you need to have compassion, to have mercy, and to forgive from the heart? Amen.